You know, there's a lot of, uh, really a tremendous amount of disrespect shown for the Lord these days. And it's unfortunate, especially as we travel into the Christmas season. Uh, you'd think that uh, more people would be respectful for what God has done for us, but maybe they just don't know. You know, but we, we really shouldn't be surprised when people are disrespectful to the Lord, because it's not just these days, all throughout history, people have had a tendency to not give God the proper honor and glory that He's due. They uh, sometimes misrepresent His character, or they belittle Him as if somehow they were greater than He. Uh, it's been said that decades, decades ago, in the early days of the uh, 20th century show business industry, a certain actress came to faith in Christ. And she was still young in her faith, and uh, a reporter asked her about, what do you think of God? And so she sort of immediately switched into character, and she hammed it up, and she said, oh, he's a doll. You know, and it's, she was trying to be funny, and uh, in the end, I think it sort of came across as a little bit of an inappropriate way to think about God, and certainly, I guess, an inappropriate way to address God especially to someone else that may not even be a believer in the Lord. You know, referring to God in uh, coarse, earthy terms like that failed to take in, fails to take into account His high standing, His power, His glory, the honor that is due Him. Occasionally, you'll hear about someone calling God the man upstairs. You know, again, that comes across to me as a little bit too flippant. Um, the man upstairs might be an appropriate reference to your uncle who will come downstairs as soon as he smells dinner ready. Um, but I think God is much more than that. Uh, one of the most common phrases you hear people use today is, oh my God. And people even shorten it on text messages, OMG. And most of the time, it means nothing more than wow, which, by the way, it's the same number of letters as OMG. You might as well use that phrase instead. Um, and so I would just say that unless the resurrected Jesus makes an appearance to you like he did doubting Thomas, who exclaimed, my Lord and my God, um, there may be a more appropriate way to exclaim your level of shock at the latest Kardashian rumor than to bring a cursory reference to the Lord and King of the universe into your discussion. So, you know, all of these things, we need to be careful with how we reference God. Um, but to me, one of the most amazing things that I've heard people say is when they're people who are clearly engaged in wrong behavior, immoral behavior, and they know it, and they don't want other people to call them out on it, they say, hey, don't judge me, God is my judge. And I'm thinking, really? I mean, you, that, you sure you want to go that way? <laughs> Are you absolutely sure that that's the most appropriate defense of your immorality? Um, you know, in your selfishness, you destroy not only your own life, but other people as well, and you're calling on God to judge you? Uh, I mean, you're not even calling on His mercy or on His kindness, um, on His forgiveness, but you're calling on His judgment? That's pretty amazing to me that someone would do that. But it all stems from having an inappropriate understanding of who God is. Uh, but one of the clearest, design, clearest signs that people uh, disrespect God 
really has nothing to do with what they say, but it has to do with how people treat other people. What people do to others. You see, when, when someone hurts another person, they are hurting beings that are made in the very image of the eternal God. And so when China enslaves Muslims, when criminals beat and murder victims, when judges bypass justice so they can receive a bribe, when politicians strip away freedoms granted to us by our Creator so they can gain power through blind compliance, it is the imagers of God who are enslaved and beaten and murdered and victimized and subjugated. Because a crime against the image of God is a crime against God Himself. And so from time to time, the Lord God, the Lord God of hosts, or as we might say today, the Lord God of armies, He'll rise up and He'll remind us of Himself and His standards. And He'll do it in any way that He sees fit. One of the many times that this has happened in history, when the Lord God arose, if you will, and reminded people of who he was. It was many centuries ago during the life of a man named Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet of God, and he proclaimed God's message for many years to the Israelites. And I would invite you, if you have access to a Bible, to turn to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1. Turn to the book of Isaiah. It should be pretty close to the very middle of your Bible, if you have your Bible. If not, the verses that we'll read today will appear on the screens behind me. And so we're going to go through Isaiah chapter 1, and we're going to look at a certain term that appears a couple of times here. And in Hebrew, it's pronounced Yahweh Sabaoth. We referenced that name, by the way, in the first song that we sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The Lord Sabaoth is His name. And uh, Sabaoth is not the same name, or not the same word as Sabbath. It's a different word altogether. Sabaoth means hosts. But the problem is, when you and I think of a host, we think of someone standing at the door welcoming us into Chili's. That's not exactly what a host is. He is the Lord of armies. So when we read the idea in your translation, it may say the Lord of hosts. We're talking about the Lord God of armies. And it should be a fearful thing when we read these words. And so we read in verse 1, a little introduction. This is the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. Verse 2, here's the message. Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Listen, 
I'm a city boy. I, I was never raised on a farm. I wouldn't know the first thing about feeding a cow or leading a donkey. But I know, I know this much, I think, that that donkey knows its master. That donkey knows where it gets its food. And that donkey is going to come home to where it gets its food. But God's people here in Isaiah's day were so blinded, so dumb. They were, they were so um, misunder, under certain misunderstandings that they had forgotten who fed them. More stubborn than a donkey, dumber than an ox. They didn't even realize it was the Lord that they were rebelling against. He said, my people don't understand. Verse 4. O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity. By the way, this idea of being weighed down, it's not, these are not light little sins, not little white lies. These are not little just uh, picadillos, you know, things that just are easily forgotten and forgiven and life goes on. No, these are major crimes against God that God's people had committed. And he calls them a certain term in verse 4 that we just read. He calls them nation. That's not usually what God says when he's referring to his people. Normally, he calls them my people. He uses the word nation to describe the pagan nations of the world. But now, he's referring to his own people as if they were a pagan nation that did not know him. This is a serious issue. O sinful nation, verse 4 again says, People weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on Him. This idea of being abandoned, despised, these are the terms of divorce. The people have actually gone so far as to divorce themselves from God. They've turned their back on the one that they had a covenant with. They've abandoned him. They despise him. They want nothing to do with God, the same God who redeemed them, the same God who rescued them from Egypt. They want nothing to do with this God. Sounds a lot like our country today. Verse 5, here's the question. Why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling? It's the idea almost of a child. A child who constantly does wrong knowing he's going to get a spanking. Knowing he's going to get a whooping. At some point you just want to ask him, why do you enjoy this? What is wrong with you? That's what God is asking his people. Why do you keep coming back for more beatings? Why do you keep doing wrong? Why do you keep on rebelling? The whole head is hurt. The whole heart is sick. From the sole of the foot even to the head, no spot is uninjured. Wounds, welts, and festering sores not cleansed. Bandaged or soothed with oil. These are, the, these are just the receipts that they have earned from their disobedience to God. Verse 7, your land is desolate. Your cities Burned down. This is the description of a, of a country that has lost everything, completely devastated by war. Think of Germany after World War II. Everything is destroyed. There's nothing left. Your land is desolate. Your cities burned down. Foreigners devour your fields right in front of you. 
A desolation like a place demolished by foreigners? Daughter Zion is abandoned like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would resemble Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah's fate was complete and utter devastation, never again to return. If God had not left a few survivors, they would have been just like that. Now in verses 10 through 15, we, we have an appeal. God makes an appeal. Okay? And in verses 10 through, 10 through 15, God describes to them what he does not want. These are things God does not want. Okay? Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are all your sacrifices to me? asks the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Noon moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with the festival. I hate your new moons and your prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. This is the idea, to put it in our terms today, of a Christian going out Monday through Saturday and mistreating people, doing wrong, being selfish, trampling over others, just a, a swath of destruction everywhere he goes, and then on Sunday comes and gives a big offering to God. God wants no part of that. God wants no part of that. If anyone should treat other people right, it should be God's people who treat other people right. But here, God's people are the ones treating others wrong. And then they turn around and they go through all of the religious ceremonies, and, and it means nothing to God. He wants our hearts right. He wants us to treat each other right. He wants us to treat the world right. People out there who don't even know him yet, he wants us to treat them right. And so we dare not come back to the Lord and pretend as if everything is well when we mistreat other people. That would be an offense to God. God does not want that. Now in verses 16 and 17, we have a beautiful description of what does please God. Verse 16. Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. It's that simple. Stop doing evil. This is not difficult. We live in a society that does not know right from wrong. We live in a society that calls right wrong and calls wrong right. But for us, we ought to know better. Just do the right thing. That's it. Do the right thing. 
We must be people that simply do what is right. And we stop doing what is wrong. Verse 17, God continues, learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Think about that, that idea. Two-word sentence, pursue justice. There's a lot made about justice today, social justices and things like that in this world, in our society. So there's a lot of talk about justice today. Here we have a simple understanding of what justice is. Justice is a moving target. Why? I mean, why can't we just finally have, have a society where everything is just? People are treated right, regardless of their wealth, regardless of what skin color they have, regardless of their background, regardless who their daddy was. People are just treated right. If they do right, they're treated right. If they do wrong, they're punished for doing wrong. Why can't we just simply have that? Listen, Justice is always something to be pursued, and here's why. Two reasons. Number one, it's hard to know all the facts. In fact, God is the only one who truly knows all the facts. He knows all the motives of every person's heart. And so when a crime is committed, we do our best to reveal, hopefully our system of justice does the best that it can to reveal what the facts are, lays them out, and an impartial jury or judge makes a decision on the merits. But more importantly than that, Justice is always something we have to pursue. Justice is never something we can claim to have ever perfectly achieved because of this simple fact, that those who administer the justice themselves are already sinners. Their own hearts are already tainted by their sin. And so knowing that, justice is always something we pursue. It is something that we strive for. Pursue justice, God says. Correct the oppressor. We need to understand that there are oppressors today living in our society. And these people need to be corrected because if they stand uncorrected, they'll continue to oppress those who are not as powerful as they. For example, there are oppressive government officials that need to be corrected, need to be disciplined need to be set straight because they otherwise will continue to use their power to hurt people. There are oppressive creditors like payday loan operators who take advantage of the poor and the uneducated in order to stuff their own pockets with extra money. There are oppressive landlords. Not every landlord is oppressive. We know that. But there are some that are oppressive who, when their tenants are, find themselves in a place of desperate need, they show no mercy and they offer no help whatsoever. And they seek to hurt their tenants instead of help their tenants. There are oppressive employers who intentionally underpay their employees so that they can make millions upon their millions. And it's wrong. Entire industries are set up to intensely underpay their employees to force them to go on the public welfare system because that's how they'll survive. And it's absolutely wrong for an employer that has the money to underpay their employees. They are affecting families. They're affecting children. They're affecting single moms who need justice. Correct the oppressor, God says. 
Listen to me. If you happen to be in a position of power, you have a special responsibility to treat people right. You need to treat them right. Because if you don't, you'll be reminded someday that you have an authority over you who is watching every move you make. And I'm pretty sure you want, to, you want him to treat you right. The verse continues, defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Who are the fatherless? They're orphans. The widows. All throughout Scripture, there are command after command after command to treat orphans and widows correctly. To plead their cause. Show mercy to them. As they need mercy. How a society treats its orphans and widows is a sign either of its greatness or its selfishness. And then we read verse 18. What an incredible verse. Perhaps the most famous beautiful verse in all of the first chapter of Isaiah. And the Lord says, come, let's settle this. Many translations say, Let's reason together. And this is incredible to me. That after so much wrong has been done to so many people, that God himself says, I'm going to give you a chance to make this right. Let's have a talk. Let's settle things. God is so merciful and he's so patient with us. He stands willing to forgive. Come, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet red. That's what scarlet means. It's blood red. Your sins have stained your your spiritual clothing, if you will, with a blood red stain that won't ever come out. Not if left on your own. But God has a way to make it come out. Though your sins have stained you like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. They are, though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. God has a way, of, a way of making every sin cleansed. Making every person forgiven if they will seek him, if they will ask. Verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In verses 21 through the end of the chapter, we have a description of how the Lord is going to deal with Judah's leaders. The faithful town. What an adulteress she has become. She was once full of justice. Righteousness once dwelt in her. But now, murderers dwell in her. Your silver has become dross to be discarded. Your beer is diluted with water. Must be a terrible situation. (laughs) I wouldn't know. Verse 23, your rulers are rebels. Friends of thieves, 
They all love graft. You know what graft is. It's basically taking bribes, and they chase after bribes. They do not defend the rights of the fatherless, and the widow's case never comes before them. Can you imagine, as Jesus described, a widow who, who knows at night she needs to get the judge's attention. The widow is going to lose her only place to live, and she needs an advocate on her side who will rule in her favor just so she can have a place to live. And the judge looks at her case and says, Delayed, delayed, delayed. I've got better things to do than to help the widow out. That's the idea here. Verse 24, here it is. Therefore, the Lord God of armies, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will get even with my foes. I will take revenge against my enemies. I'll tell you one thing. One thing that you never want to encounter is when the Lord God of armies opposes you. He does not lose. Ever. The Lord God of armies is ready to get up and go to war against those who oppose him. Verse 25, and this verse is perhaps when I read this in the entire context of this chapter, this verse made me pause. This verse just really made me almost not even understand the entire passage. Because here's why. As we're reading this, we get the idea that there's going to be some nasty kind of judgment coming. And God's going to wipe some people out, right? I mean, God is fed up, according to this passage. And he's about to do something about it. And then we get to verse 25. God says, I will turn my hand against you and will burn away your dross completely I will remove all your impurities and I read that and I thought that doesn't seem to be the appropriate punishment the appropriate punishment is to wipe these people out but he's talking to his people and it dawned on me what's going on. That when the Lord God of armies goes to war against those who never knew him, it is bad indeed. And when he goes to war against us, for doing the same thing that those who don't know him do, the net effect is that our impurities are burned away. He purifies us with the holy judgment. It won't be pleasant, but it does not end in our destruction. It ends in our purification. 
What a tremendous difference. We see the same idea in the next two verses, verses 26 and 27. God says, I will restore your judges to what they were at first and your advisors to what they were at the start. Afterward, you will be called the righteous city, a faithful town. Zion will be redeemed by justice, by those who repent, by righteousness. Do you see the net result, the end result of what happens when believers are on the end are on the receiving end of God's judgment were purified were made right all the wickedness is burned away burned away from our hearts burned away from our lives verse 28 at the same time Both rebels and sinners will be broken, and those who abandon the Lord will perish. Indeed, they will be ashamed of the sacred trees you desired, and you will be embarrassed because of the garden shrines you have chosen. For you will become like an oak whose leaves are withered, and like a garden without water. The strong one will become tender, and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to extinguish the flames. There's one thing going on here, but there's two different kinds of recipients. The one thing going on is the Lord God of armies is coming against humans that do evil. The two recipients are either believers who will be purified in the end, or unbelievers who will be completely destroyed there's coming a time when every single one of us believer and unbeliever will stand before the Lord whether you're destroyed on that day or whether you're purified on that day is up to you if you want to be able to withstand the day of judgment there's one thing you need to do You need to turn away from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who has purchased redemption for you and who will make you stand on that final day.